Mixing is a technical realization of an emotional thing, right? Like a good mix, in my opinion, should be a song has now achieved the peak ability to transmit what the intended emotion is to the listener. Technically speaking, all you're doing is balancing and leveling and making it work on a bad stereo, but like actually what you're doing is emotionally interpreting the presentation of this piece of music. You know, the real truth is, is that if you're turning, if you're the one that's saying go to the master or like the one that's like posting it online, like you mixed it, you're the mixer. So everybody's a mixer at this point in history. I think the biggest thing that for me personally has been such a lucky thing is that I got to see a lot of people whom I deeply, deeply respect break rules. Hello everyone, Kirk here with another conversation-style episode. This one is a chat that I had with composer, producer, bassist, and master mix engineer Brian Bender. Bender has worked with a ton of amazing artists on a ton of amazing records over the years. He worked his way up from a journeyman engineer in New York to today when he runs his own studio in Los Angeles, The Mother Brain. He's also co-founder of the indie record label Rainbow Blonde Records, does all kinds of work in film and TV and video games. He's just everywhere. But you may have never heard his name. He's just one of the countless amazingly talented people who get up every day, sit down in the studio, and make music. He's also one of my oldest friends. See, as it happens, Brian and I grew up together in Bloomington, Indiana, and we were super tight way back in the day, way back in fourth grade. We spent more than 30 years doing our own things, living our own lives in different parts of the country. I've always kind of kept track of his career as it progressed, and I finally decided that it was time to hit him up and have him come on Strong Songs. So you are not only about to hear a master producer share his creative philosophy and his technical tricks, you're also about to hear a reunion between me and one of my oldest friends. A quick note before we start, Brian and I do get kind of technical at various points in this conversation, so I've put some extra work into the show notes for this episode. In addition to the names of the songs that we talk about and all that usual stuff, you'll find lists of all the gear that we mention, the studios that we talk about, and a few of the sort of technical terms that we use. And just to explain a couple of those terms so that you'll be prepared for them when they come along, AD and DA like AD conversion, those refer to analog to digital and digital to analog conversion, which is when you convert an audio signal from analog to digital, like an analog format like tape into a digital format like a Pro Tools session, or go back and forth. And a lot of mix engineers do that because they're working with analog and digital gear. So AD, DA, that's what that means. Brian talks about mixing and producing music in the box. And whenever someone talks about working in the box, that means you're working totally digitally. The box is the computer. You're inside the box. So you're not using any outboard gear or anything like that. So anytime um, an engineer talks about in the box, that's what they're talking about. Last thing is stems, which I've talked about on Strong Songs before. But stems in a recording session are when you take a collection of tracks, like the strings, say you've individually mic'd seven different string instruments, you bounce all of those seven tracks down to a single stereo file, and then you just work with that because you get them all like, you know, sounding how you like it. Then you just have a stem, and that's like the string stem. And then eventually you'll have stems for sort of all of the different parts. And that's really helpful, especially with film scoring, TV scoring, that kind of thing, because you have so many instruments, so many different parts working together that you're going to just start mixing in broader strokes. So you work with stems instead of with individual tracks. So when he mentions stems, that's what he's talking about. Okay, that's enough up front. That's enough preamble. Let's get to it. Brian Bender, my old friend, welcome to Strong Songs. It's my pleasure to be here, man, distinctly. Uh, it's really wild to have you here. We haven't talked in a really long time, even though I've been following your career. And I've been listening to some of the records that you've produced, and they're really, really good. And it's very cool to have on someone 
who's worked on the kind of breadth of stuff that you've worked on and also who I've known for so long. It's just kind of a trip. Like that'll be a funny undercurrent. I think of this whole conversation. Right. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. We both had quite the arc. We did. We did. I guess, I guess every, I guess that's the, the moral of that is that everybody has quite the arc when it comes down to it. Um, right. And it just happens that the people that you knew when you were a kid sometimes wind up doing pretty cool stuff. <laughs> so you're a producer, you're a mixer, you're a recording engineer, an arranger, a composer. You wear all the hats that everybody has to wear these days. Um, let's start with a producer because that one is kind of an all-encompassing hat. It's the biggest sure. hat. It goes on to all the smaller hats. How do you conceive of the role of a producer? Well, I have like a like a, a sort of terse answer and then we can get into the expanded version. But literally, I think the job of a producer is to just finish it. Mm. That's what you're being hired for is to turn in something that's done. Nice. And that's why producers get the first billing a lot of the times, especially in film and TV. Right. It's because they're the people that are managing the product, managing the project and realizing it in the ultimate construction that it gets released into the public. Mm. Um and then, you know, more granularly, that can be that can be anything that can be you can be a psychologist, you can be a sommelier, you can be <laughs> uh, you can be and in the modern context in record making, like you can be a writer, right? Like writing producers is, mm-hmm. is a big thing. But, you know, I, I've kind of been lucky enough to see, like you said, like a lot of different versions of that. So I've worked with like one of the very first producers that I got to work with a lot was that guy Craig Street. Mm. Um, and he, you know, he did like Joe Henry's record Scar, which I love deeply, and like Suzanne Vega and Susanna Bakken and uh, Katie Lang's big record, and a bunch of those kind of like legendary acoustic sure. records from the late 90s and early 2000s. And I, like his genius was really kind of almost more in the um, like Bill Simzik school. Like he was a musician himself, but he didn't tend to communicate musically. He, he, he communicated more impressionistically, right? Like mm. he was, he was doing a record. Um, the first real record that I ever worked on when I moved fresh face to New York city in 2004 was for Mark Anthony Thompson, chocolate genius. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, amazing dudes. We stay friends to this day, Craig and Mark and all of us and I as well. And like, Mark is just the coolest dude and Craig would like bring up stuff like smoked duck breast from Blue Ribbon Bakery and Baguette (laughs) and like you know he had this wonderful wine shop that specialized in like sub $20 bottles of wine from France from these little maisons that were amazing but nobody knew about. Wow. You know what I mean? And I got to see in in real time like how somebody being seen from other aspects than just their sort of life as a creative life as an artist can creep into those parts of their being right like to for mark to know that craig was taking care of him in that way and was like a part of his like that he was a part of the total concept that this person was bringing to his album was like just as important as the ways in which craig would be like what about a g7 here instead of c or you know what i mean like interesting yeah so that that's the more impressionistic version that you're talking about is just the kind of taking care of everybody and just making sure that everything is is working okay totally yeah and i mean i think a real very cool version of that that a lot of people that are a little abstract from this business don't sort of understand is that 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 work starts from the phone hmm you know, like once you get the people into the room, you've sort of created the terrarium that is going to be the the process, right? So like mm-hmm. me and a good friend of mine talk about this a lot, like choose your collaborators very carefully. But once you do, set them fully free and let them do what they do and like 
predicate your decision making on their authentic voice rather than the things that you think that they can bring to the project. That's challenging to build an environment for creative people to be creative in. I would imagine that it's a difficult thing to learn. How did you learn to do that? Or when what, when was the first time you did it? And what was that like? Yeah, I mean, there's no sort of formal pedagogy for that, right? Like, there's nobody no. <laughs> that's written a book on, like... Because it's such a complicated Venn diagram, right? You have, like, yeah. human behavioral psychology. Right. You have social psychology. You have right. the sort like of... Like, wine import-export. <laughs> you know what I mean? You have the sort yeah. of technical realization of this process. Some producers have no idea about mics or gear. Some producers are like, I'm loading in my special, special thing. Turn it right. on for me. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So... I sort of feel like that's like one of those things that you can only earn by watching it go down. You know, Mm -hmm. I've been lucky enough to be the dumbest person in the room a lot. So when you then became a producer, how did you make that jump? You just have to be lucky enough. I I think one thing that people don't understand about my job is that I'm like four phone calls away from being unemployed always. (laughs) Aren't we all? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And it's like exacerbated by the freelance world, right? So like I think, I forget who's attributed this quote, but there's some great quote that's like the only difference between a professional and an amateur is a professional gets paid. (laughs) That's, yeah. You know, somebody called me and they were like, hey, we have money for you to do this. And I was like, great, I'd love to. (laughs) You know? What uh, What was that like? Like, what was it like making the transition from watching producers work and kind of marveling at the many subtle you know ways that that expressed itself to actually doing it and having to figure out how to bounce creative personalities off of one another how to create the space for something beautiful to happen i would say that realistically speaking i was probably working professionally for like six or seven years before i was entrusted with being like the producer on an album the producer yeah yeah so there was a lot of realized practicum that had already been stuck in my belt and Mm -hmm. i you know i had been a part of a lot of sessions where i was top dog and where i was not where i was like fetching the chips you know and like Mm -hmm. getting cookies for al green and stuff like that so (laughs) true story um, <laughs> nice. What kind of cookies? Uh, man, I don't. I never know how much truth to to dish on these kinds of things. But <laughs> is that is that sensitive information? It the type is. Of cookies? Yeah. Because, oh, all right. All right. Yeah. Um, I'm just gonna go ahead now with it. So I was working Electric Lady for a year, and I was uh-huh. working for Russ Elevato, that producer. Oh who did. my! I was wondering if you if you ever worked with him, just because I hear a lot of like Voodoo and Mama's Gun and some of your work. Those are the, those records are, the, are to my to this day one of some yeah. of my favorite in the world. Agree. Some of the best produced, best recorded stuff I've ever heard. Sonically unbelievable. The unbelievable. writing, the band, yep. all the above. So I was lucky enough to get poached from my first job in New York. I was working for Philip Glass. Oh, yeah. And I was there for two year and a half, two years. And then the Hit Factory poached me and I went there. I had the dubious distinction of being the last person that the Hit Factory Manhattan ever hired. Hey, man, that's a, that's something. You know, I was like, I was already assisting. I think actually it was the day off between that Chocolate Genius record and like another 100 hour week. And I showed up Mm. just like totally worked over in like metaphorical sweatpants, just like not caring at all about this interview. Like, this is my day off. Hire me Uh or don't. I don't care. You know, (laughs) And uh, uh, 
Yeah. So I worked there for like a month and then they had the employee meeting where they announced that they were going to shutter the whole corporation. Mm. So what became like a merit-based advancement hire, like when you get hired up through the ranks, turned yeah. very quickly into like a dead end shipping job. And I was like helping near Neil Portnoy get his like thousand drum heads out of the storage locker <laughs> in the basement. Oh this is, these are all true stories. Right. A one week project. Sure. True sure. stories. Yeah. No, it's days. Um, yeah, yeah. And so, yeah. So then they closed. I went back to looking glass and then, I was there maybe another six months or something and, and Christian, the manager, who's a really good friend and was like taking an active role in helping me develop my career, got a phone call from Lee at Electric Lady saying that they were looking for an assistant to help Russ. And like, oh, man. low key, that was the pie in the sky fantasy. Like, wanna, yeah, you know, I want to move to New York and make records with these people. Like, let's try, yep. you know. And so I got that call about three years into my tenure in New York and went and this worked was, there. What year was this? I think oh, I'm really bad with that stuff, but I want to say that that was like 2007, 2008. Okay. Just to, I kind of place it in my head as to that like 2000 era yep. um, at Electric Lady. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It was like really Russ had like pulled the studio out of bankruptcy. Flanzer, yeah. the old manager, had been removed. The studio had been resold, I think, or maybe it was. Ownership had not changed hands yet, but it was tendered to someone who was supposed to be a better steward. Nice. So anyway, Russ was working on a bunch of stuff when I came in. I was hired under slightly false pretenses. Uh, <laughs> basically, like the his relationship with the studio had becoming had been becoming increasingly tense, mm. and so they hired me as the like charming stopgap. Like I was supposed to make it okay. I was supposed to be the intermediary between the studio and him. No pressure. You know what I mean? For ten dollars <laughs> an hour, bro. Yeah. So one day we had Al Green come in. And it was for that record, Lay It Down, that last record that he did for Blue Note. Okay, sure. Um, and we had a 23-hour setup day, me and Ben Kane. Uh, ben is a great friend and wonderful engineer and has a wonderful studio in new york that you should check out uh, called electric garden and so anyway he and i set up the studio 23 hour setup day i went home i took the train home because i had like a moral obligation to not sleep at the studio to myself and so <laughs> took the train home made my ex pancakes did not eat those pancakes got back onto the train and went to work <laughs> And so I had gotten a call from Alice Handler a couple days prior to the session, which was like, she's like a very this energy kind of person. She's like, uh -huh, oh, uh -huh. yeah. Oh, so last time there were cookies in the session and that just went, that was such a big hit because Alice hypoglycemic. <laughs> and, you know, I just think it was, it's really important. And it, please make sure to get those same kind of cookies, specifically the same kind of cookies because they were such a big hit. And I was like, no problem. Okay, I can do sure. that. <laughs> you know? So I like called down and I was like, yo, I need some petty cash. Give me like 40 bucks to get Al Green some cookies. And he was like, no. Nah. And uh, I huh. was like, what actually are you talking about? Give me $40 for the mm -hmm. legendary godfather of souls heir right. apparent to like get some cookies. These are important cookies. These are important cookies. These cookies are responsible for half of the people we've ever loved. <laughs> um, and so he just straight up said no. He was like, yeah, Blue Note took a, like eight months to pay me for the last session. So I'm not going to give you any petty cash. Oh man. So what'd you do? So I was like, okay and uh the session got rolling and it was one of those sessions that like i think there were like 23 people in the studio for wow. the, the band was quest love adam jack adam blackstone uh james poiser uh okay. 
Pino was supposed to be on the gig, but he was out with the Who. That's why I was Adam. Spanky mm. before Spanky died. Oh man! And Al, you know what I mean? And we're doing yeah. this live to a Studer two inch twenty four track, like fifteen nips mm -hmm. XP noise reduction, like as straight up OG as it could possibly wow. be. And so I'm getting set up for this. I'm like busying myself. Al shows up with the handler woman and she comes in with that same energy. She's like, yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. So everything looks great. Where are the cookies? And I'm like, you know, I'm not sure. I asked again <laughs> this morning. Let me go downstairs and check on those. And then I just ran up the block and bought them on my dime. Sure. You know what I mean? So I just yeah. ran out and was like, here's four hours of my paycheck today. Let's go. Mm -hmm. So what kind of cookies were they? They were Tate's because that was of the moment. Okay. Um, sure sure yeah tates and then i think whatever there was so electric ladies on eighth on astor place and sixth avenue so there's a lifetime right there and then there's a um not a dean and deluca but the other citarella so i went to citarella mm -hmm. and was like mm -hmm. give me 50 dollars worth of cookies <laughs> i just want some tates <laughs> do nice. you know what i mean and like to be honest with you i don't think any of them were eaten but that's the business you well know the cookies I mean? were there and you you made the the assistant happy and that's the important thing that's kind of the moral, the larger philosophical moral of the story too, right? right? Is that like this wasn't an important part of the process or in any way required for record making, but like the fact that they wanted to feel as if their needs were being met and they were being right. regarded emotionally and taken care of, that was mm -hmm. more important than any amount of money that you could spend. Yeah, you know, I've had that conversation with people before who will talk about outrageous rider items for musicians right. as if they're these ridiculous things when the point isn't always to have the M&Ms or whatever separated totally. out. It's because they want to make sure that they're being taken care of. Yep. I think that is a thing that that is important. Um, backing up a minute, you talked about a 23-hour setup day. Yeah. I'm kind of curious what is involved in a 23-hour studio setup. Can you kind of just walk listeners through what that is? <laughs> entails absolutely yeah so i mean for a session like that you want it to be like mixed magazine cover ready right so we like right because there's going to be a photographer maybe it's got to look definitely cool. going to be a photographer yeah we were in studio c all full-time like we just lived up there and this was mm -hmm. before management there kind of messed up the floor c was originally Jimi hendrix's apartment it was built by oh, okay. walter stork design group that's right because he lived there that's right exactly and actually like never really did any records there which people don't really talk about or know really and frankly just... apocryphally from what i've heard kind of hated the studio huh that's funny <laughs> yeah that goes against the legend <laughs> that's all against the legend but so studio c was formerly his apartment and when i was there it had been turned into one studio a large lounge and a storage area called gus which was quite okay. large um but it has since been turned into something egregious like four studios um but basically we had a very large very kind of puffy absorbent live room that needed to be goboed out so mm. we created the physical acoustic spaces we set up all the lines, we checked everything, we got the tape machine aligned, we made it look absolutely perfect and beautiful. And, you know, that that is not a slow process necessarily. That is, is a slow process. When you say set up the lines, you mean like the sight lines between the different musicians? Yeah, actually, yeah, perfectly, perfectly read. That, that wasn't my intention, but that's critical as well. Yeah, the sight lines and then also quite literally the tie lines, like the mic lines between, oh, the, okay, got between it. the things. Yeah, I've always noticed engineers doing that whenever I'm in an actual session in a room that part of it is just getting the instruments to be placed where they won't bleed too much onto one another, but the musicians can still 
see one another, exactly. which is just as important as being able to listen, I've found. Absolutely, yeah. And I think for this, this was uh, one of the reasons that it took so long that day before your listeners are like, who is this dude? Why did that take so long? Was because <laughs> they had already done a couple of writing days previously. So mm -hmm. additionally, we were trying to recall to match the sound of the previous writing days mm -hmm. so that all that stuff could be used seamlessly. And that, I would imagine, is a more complicated process in a studio like 100%. that because it's not just a matter of like having digital presets that you've saved, right? You've got to actually 100%. go through. Do you have to find the sound manually, like listening yeah. and kind of adjusting things? Quite literally, yeah. And like, that sounds like a huge pain. <laughs> it's a it's a time consumptive process, and like you know, documenting it is hugely time consumptive as well. Because like, okay, say for example, you want to document a guitar sound. Okay. You need like this is the classic thought experiment of go make a peanut butter sandwich, you know, but like right to document a guitar sound, you need the guitar, you need the amp, you need the mic. But then the next level down more granularly, you need the mic placement, you need the mic preamp, you need the gain setting on the mic preamp, you need the gain setting and the EQ setting and the channel input on the guitar amp. You know what I mean? You need and then yeah. like work backwards from every layer of extrapolation thereby, you know. It's funny, you know, I the more advanced digital emulation gets the more they're actually showing you photos of the placement of the microphone totally. on the fake amp as you're adjusting it totally. and it really does make it easier to save your settings even though i still find like i use a lot of digital emulation and i still mm. don't save things correctly right. like it's still <laughs> a pain i can't even imagine actually trying to keep track of things do you write stuff like that down when you're working in your own studio or do you uh reverse engineer things just using your ears more so it at that time, I mean, again, hashtag old, uh, we were making like like three ring binder sized paper folios of, of recalls. Oh, man. So we had like a we had like a little tackle box file cabinet full up full of paper image print offs of mm -hmm. sort of, again, impressionistic representations of all the rack gear. So you'd like mark the knob positions. You could mark what kind of amp mic position you'd sure. write up all the chains. So now here in my studio, it's importantly uh, an iteration of time enough later that, um, you know, smartphones kind of do that work for us now anyway. So you like take pictures of things. I have the most boring Google photo account in the world. I've done that a bunch of times though. And it's actually, I've, there was this moment where I kind of had the breakthrough of, wait a minute, I can just take a picture of all the knobs on the synthesizer and then just like look at it next time I need to, That's I need it. to do it. And it's a lot faster than, yeah, trying to develop some kind of a shorthand. That's it. That's the that's the proest move I've found. There are some like third party <laughs> commercial solutions. I air quote yeah, that solutions, yeah. but a lot of them are subscription based models, which I don't really mm -hmm. mess with. And no, right, it works. Right, right. The the easiest thing usually works, even though there's always someone will come up with some product that they'll try to sell you that'll exactly. do it better. But then, yeah. Um, well, let me ask you about your studio. So your studio is called the Mother Brain. Mm -hmm. This is a, is this a Metroid reference at all? That was my first it question. 100% is a Metroid reference. Yeah. I'm so glad that it's yeah. a Metroid reference. I associate you, listeners should know that you introduced me to a lot of video games. I you are like the reason that I played so many Super Nintendo era like that kind of early <laughs> 90s era games. Killer Instinct because, baby. Yeah, man, and like playing Street Fighter with you at your house totally. because I'll on, I have a different video game podcast and I'll often talk about how well, I didn't really play a link to the past, but I was my buddy had it and I would right. go and we do sleepovers and I play it. And you're 
anybody who listens to both of those podcasts will delight in knowing that Brian is that buddy. So Dude, um get me in the video game podcast, man. I still I still play. <laughs> I've been working on some video games now too in the last couple of years. Yeah, that's super true. fun. That's true. We'll have to we'll have to do it sometime. Um so the Mother Brain Studio, what when did you start this studio and what was the process of building your own professional home studio that was just going to be such a part of your brand and such a place where you work? Well, I would I would say the you know, you sort of start building the studio the first thing you buy, you know? So yeah. I bought like a a 414 that I still have when I was like 19 or something like oh, that. Oh man, that's like my I love that microphone, man. I, yeah, like, you know. I got one not that long ago and it's really good mic. They're great, especially if you can find an 80s one that still has a CK1 mm. brass ring capsule. Those are the mm-hmm. same capsules that are in the vintage C12s that are very much more highly prized. Mm. Uh, but those have crept up in expense considerably. Um, yeah, yeah. I just got a kind of new one, I think, so yeah. I guess mine sucks. <laughs> they, I mean, it, look, man, people get <laughs> really... Engineers are snobs, bro. Oh and, yeah, I know. And I'm not, I'm not with that. I'm not a part mm-hmm. of that crew. Um, mm-hmm. Even though I like write for Tape Op and stuff, I'm not like I'm not a snob. <laughs> yeah, Tape Op is a nightmare. I started getting that magazine, and it's just like, oh, so I want to buy everything in the world now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a slippery slope when you start to it ascend is. Gear Mountain. Yes, um, it is. Well, so the mother brain, yeah, I would say it's sort of started and has been evolving since I bought my first gear. And it's been in, gosh, I mean, as many locations as I have. So I think now here in L.A., we're in like our seventh location, eighth location. Oh, well, right. um, and uh, yeah, I think the the reason for the for the moniker is is obviously for those of you who aren't Metroid fans, the <laughs> villainess from the Metroid series was a brain in a glass jar called mother brain. And, and she was this fusion of digital technology with a sort of analog center. And I just felt like that's such a, a, a an obvious analogy for my work. Yeah, uh, but yeah, sure. Some that no one else has really gotten to. So I still mix very hybrid. Like I still have a lot of old musky fire hazards that I turn on as many days as I'm enabled and mm-hmm. and prefer that workflow very much. So when you say hybrid, you mean hybrid digital and analog, right? That's right, yeah. So when you say you turn on the musty fire hazards, that's kind of old analog gear that you're running stuff through. What kind of analog gear do you use? You know, like what what kind of processing are you doing with analog gear that you that you find value in that sound? Well, uh, really kind of every version of signal processing is available in here in analog as well. Um, mm-hmm. I have a console from the mid-1960s, an Austrian broadcast console that me and a friend of mine, Francois Chambard, uh, built and customized and modernized. Nice. Uh, my friend John Anderson helped me do a lot of the electrical design and work and implementation. Um, so yeah, I mean, I've got it right here. I can I can show you since we're on video. Nice. Oh, there it is. All right. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. And then you know I've got a bunch of uh, fun kind of analog signal processing rack gear. Like those are all compressors oh, yeah. or mic pre's sure. or EQs. And the then LA two. Yeah. That LA two A specifically came out of the producer's workshop here in LA and was famously used on the wall. Oh man, that's a great compressor. Yeah, that compressor is serial number three hundred and fourteen. I want to say. Wow. <laughs> and I wow. actually, I talked to you. Remember Russ Castillo? Yeah. So Russ was at the producers' workshop oh, when man. when that was happening, and I knew this, and that's was cool. like, "Yo, I bought this from the former owner. Do you know this unit?" And he was like, "Oh yeah, that was the one that was in Studio B. We used that for oh the, man. That was specifically the guitar chains on the wall. Wow, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So you'll still kind of just run stuff through." 
those unit those rack units you've got kind of all absolutely around, just yeah. when you want to get a certain sound i have also a tape machine i have a an ampex this guy right here that's a oh yeah sure that's an ampex two track half inch that's the elvis sort of sun studios slap sound that's motown that's ampex was the tape machine company that started first like that's yeah. Les Paul. That's all of those right. classic records. Right. This one has unsurprisingly been heavily modified, but the last record that I mixed went across that thing. So when you say it went across a tape, you know, like a, a tape machine, what, explain what that means to, to put a mix across a tape. So uh, on a, I mean, just quite literally recording it to the tape and then mm-hmm. playing it back off of the tape and recording it back into Pro Tools. So do you send each individual track to the tape or do you just send the whole mix to the tape and then back into Pro Tools? Um, for this record specifically actually both. It was recorded mm-hmm. initially to a multi-track tape machine uh, an okay. Otari 2 inch 16 track okay. uh, which is a kind of special head stack configuration and, and itself a very special machine and then because the basics were done at Dreamland in New York they then shipped me a drive with Pro Tools sessions with all of the the playbacks from tape so they were recorded analog to analog and then digitized for transfer because i didn't have the same otari here so i couldn't play the tapes right they couldn't just otherwise they would like ship you the tape right you know it's like if you don't have an eight track player you can't play any eight tracks you know what i mean it's the same exact thing so yeah so they shipped me a pro tools drive with the sessions on it i then uh, you know i have a pretty cool pro tools conversion system that's all transformer balanced and and fun and stuff so playing back out of Pro Tools across all of the sort of analog signal chains that I was using for the album. And specifically for this album, it was all analog time domain stuff, like only analog compression limiting, only analog EQ. Wow. Um, and then mixed it to a tape machine. So there was one A to D, D to A step in between the basic tracking and the mix. But then once I had it in the analog domain, it was printed back to analog. That's cool. So you can just kind of keep it there. Exactly. And like- make the world's kind of a separate thing. Do you find analog is so much slower than digital in so many ways? Yeah, yeah. What are your feelings on that creatively? The just slower pace that you have to work at when you're working with analog signals? I think it's so wonderful. I think it's yeah. so wonderful. <laughs> there are certain things that are really a bummer, like stems are a drag for me. Mm. I do a lot of film and TV work also. Yeah. And uh, for that, that that stuff tends to be entirely in the box right now just because of all the post-production schedules such as they are so when and, you say stems you mean like making submixes within your mix exactly because like, in analog you have to do that manually right like you have to take the time to record it. it's happening in real time exactly yeah, yeah it's it's these things move at the speed of light so it happens you have to hit record and wait whereas right. offline bounce you know you're just like cool i'm gonna go get a cup of water while this mm-hmm. does its thing and i'll be back mm-hmm. and then send them to the music editor you know right 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 um, and there are ways around that. I'm I'm working on revising my setup in such a way that I can print full wide stems for a mix in one oh, go. Nice. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, the last two uh, I mixed the score for the last two Madden football games. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And uh, got to do some additional music on Madden 21 too. So that that I was really proud of. I'm like playing guitar cool. under Snoop Dogg and stuff. <laughs> um, so for those, I have EA. I don't probably they don't want me to give too much of this information but ea has like a proprietary stack that allows them to play stems back at an incredible width so i print 156 wide track stems 
for wow. them. Wow. Yeah, like like Junky XL shipping to yeah, Alan yeah, Meyerson. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. And that's a little bit of hyperbole because it's 26 tracks of 5-1 pairs. So mm-hmm. it's not like 156 individual elements. Still, that's a crazy amount of stuff. It's a crazy amount of stuff. And I have a very realized sort of output template that then I was like, maybe can I import this mentality into analog? So what I kind of want to be able to do is to have like 32 tracks of direct outs, right? So I can mix mm-hmm. everything down in analog and then stripe 32 tracks of stems plus a stereo two track back in in analog. Wow. Without ever leaving analog. So like turning the whole mix into something much smaller that then you could then do that multiple times, right? And wind up with an extremely complex mix. Totally. Or like print it back to the box too. Like if I'm working on a TV show, right? Then I can like still have these beautiful, colorful, wonderful pieces of analog that are so inspiring to work with, but kind of acknowledge the pace and acknowledge the um, revisionist reality of film and television work in such a way that those two things aren't at odds with one another anymore. Yeah, I've really found the um, that slowing down can just be so helpful. I so I use a lot of digital stuff, but I I changed over to Universal Audio's plugins, and mm-hmm. they slow my bounce way down in Logic. Sure, used to be bouncing an hour long podcast took like a few couple minutes right. in Logic when I wasn't using anything, but now it takes like thirty five minutes, and even doing that, it just changes the way that I think about the process. Yep. When I'm really you know when I'm really ready to bounce something down, well, it's going to take a while, yep. and then I you know, hit the bounce button and then have to just go actually do something else and walk away from the computer. Totally. That alone is just nice, right? To be able to to have that space. Man, seek times was always a really enjoyable thing for me in a session where you're recording to tape specifically, specifically recording, like mixing, whatever. But when you're doing a tracking session to tape, like A, Mm -hmm. it presupposes years worth of work that the musician has done in advance of walking in the door to Mm -hmm. even make being on tape relevant. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) So that often makes just the process easier because you're not micromanaging the performance ever. It's Mm -hmm. impossible to do that in the same way as inside the box. That's really different. I did a horn session. Geez, this was years, a few years ago now up here that was fully on tape. And just it really required recalibrating how we thought about the performance because we just had to do the take and get it done yep. recording a whole band that way i would imagine is you know even more the same thing it's so easy to get in that mindset of like well let's just like as long as we get one version of this part of the middle of the phrase correct well we can just like we can loop really it. quick yeah we can get in right we'll just loop it just do it a bunch of times yeah which yeah is is just it's nice i mean it's convenient in a certain way there are some musicians i've worked with where it was a good thing that we were able to do that because they were just never going to get one perfect take. Totally. But yeah, this is a, a very different approach. Um, I want to talk about this Ben Williams record. I am a man. This record is incredible, man. You, you were so what? What was your role in this? You were producer, mixer. You did a ton of different things. On this so gosh, yeah, I produced with Ben. I recorded most of it. Some of the um, strings were recorded by an incredibly talented engineer, Jacqueline Sanchez. String sound. Fantastic. Yeah, okay. she's bad as hell. She works for mm-hmm. Ben Kane at that studio, Electric Garden, that I mentioned. Okay. Um, and I believe she did it like Marcus Strickland's overdubs too. So a couple okay. like Horn and Strings overdubs. But the mm-hmm. band, the basics, the vocals, everything else was tracked here in this little 400 square foot space here in, in Los Angeles. Why didn't you come for me? Left me all alone. No. Why didn't you stay with me? This place is not a home. 
Well, yeah. So it's I want to say in total it's about 450 square feet. It's a it's a mother-in-law that I'm in in the front of our property. Um, and the way that I was doing it for that record, uh, Ben is a huge Prince fan, so he loves the sound of DI guitar anyway. So and the guitar player was down. Everybody was kind of down to do it that way. So we basically we did the drums acoustically. And then we did guitar, bass, and Rhodes DI. Everybody was playing at the same time? Yeah, so we did like an old school tracking session basics, like everybody mm-hmm. live to tape, to tape, to okay. Pro Tools tape. Um, right. But yeah, everybody was playing in the room together. So you get that sort of reactivity, you get that conversation that's impossible mm-hmm. to get otherwise, really. Um, so you let's let's go, can we go through each of those instruments? So starting with the drums, the drums sound phenomenal on this album all of your drums sound great you're really clearly like following that sort of electric lady soulquarians drum sound i mean it's such a it just seems to me like that's the best drum sound there is and then Mm. drums will never sound better than that and i was like well this sounds like that too and it's great sound man thanks Um, man how how what kind of kit is set up and how did you mic it like how did you approach recording it so it's my drum set it's a cc custom that i had built several years ago um It's a uh, maple poplar maple shells and a five ply maple uh, kick drum. Uh, it's twenty inch kick uh, and uh, all about the twenty. Twenty is the vibe. Twenty with a yeah. felt beater. It's the best. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a Keystone badge, uh, vintage Superphonic, like a six and a half, like Bonham. No, oh, Superphonic. That's what I got here. My dad's old kit. It's the only it's one, man. Great snare drum. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, in terms of miking, uh, I. Generally, I do all the usual suspect close mics, right? I, my unsurprisingly, my version of that is a little weird, right? So, I'm sure you've got all the cool like transistorless mics or whatever that you're using. Eh, it's a, no, it's even a little weirder than that. I've got like on the, <laughs> on the kick, my my new favorite kick drum microphone is the EV. Um, I always forget it's the Cardiline shotgun microphone. It's like a 640 or 642, uh-huh. but it's the original shotgun microphone that Electro Voice won an, a technical Oscar for. It looks hmm. like a ray okay. gun, and it's the best yeah. close mic for kick beater that I found. Okay, um, and then I have a really great Fet 47 that I was able to buy years and years ago before they got expensive, uh, and a sub kick, uh, a Yamaha NS10 woofer that I have wired an XLR pigtail on the output of. Oh, nice. So you got three on the kick drum. Three on the kick. The kick uh, sounds great. I've been, I'm stymied by kick drum and I was wondering how many mics you use. Okay, cool. I, you know, shout out to my friend, Matt Cullen. He'll make fun of me endlessly for the amount of microphones that I put on a kick. But for me, three is the winner, man. Three is the magic number. I mean, it sounds good. If it sounds good, it sounds good. That's Duke, baby. That's it, you know? Yeah. Um, and then, so, I here's where I get a little trashy, which I like a lot. But yeah. snare top and bottom, SM57, all day, every really? day. Really? On the bottom, all 57. Day, every day. Yeah, 57 on the top, sure. But bottom, that's surprising. 57 on the bottom, going into an Ampex 602, specifically. Okay. Okay. Ampex 602 is the prosumer version of Ampex's record electronics from that tape machine that I was talking to you mm-hmm. about. The 602 was made to be sort of like a, you know, like a, <laughs> like the basically the sort of existential equivalent to buying like a high eight. 
But hmm. the thing was like 80 pounds and huge right. and in a wooden case. And you had to schlep it to your family reunion if you wanted to record the speeches, <laughs> you know? Right, right. Um, but they're just trashy in the right ways. And so that 57 into a 602 is, I, I'll fight I'll fight anyone. Like, I have not found a better snare bottom sound. Nice. And that's just to get the, the kind of, this is for anyone who doesn't know, miking the bottom of the snare drum, that's where the snares are. So you get the kind of brighter quality of the snare drum exactly. and a lot of people you can just mic the top but if you mic the top and the bottom which i've actually been experimenting with as well and only barely learning how to do but it makes a pretty huge difference you can do a lot of stuff just by isolating that bottom mic. um yeah i think it makes a huge difference and specifically the ampex is very distorted so it kind of wakes up the odd harmonics hmm. and example like it's one of those things i look for when i'm recording anything acoustically i'm looking for a combination of symbiosis from the from the microphone from the mic pre and to the source right mm -hmm. so somehow an sm57 into an ampex is the most flattering combination that i have ever found for the snare rattles on a snare drum it just like yeah yeah pushes the 1.5 in this way that's like too much decapitator but like the best possible version of that mm, you know nice. that's uh that's cool finishing up the drums you just what do you were there mono drums on this record or do you mono not drums it yeah it sounded like and, mono to me right yeah now. there was a happy accident actually so to finish the rest of the close mics i do 57 on the hi-hat too because yeah. i'm oh, a right. redneck and hey man 57 is a good mic you can put a 57 on anything look i mean if i'm going desert island like i have bougie 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 rare of 10 you can't buy it microphones sm57 that speaks to the quality of the 57 though right as you're still using it sure brothers don't pay me they we're not friends <laughs> like i just will go i will be Build yeah, a raft yeah. and escape to the desert island that I will then make the record on with that 57. Mm -hmm. 57 on the hat, 421s on Tom Bottom. Mm -hmm. only, I only mic the bottom these days. Um, Interesting. I, you know, when I'm looking for more out of a Tom close mic, I'm looking for sustain and tonality and pitch anyway. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So I feel like from the overheads perspective, I, I have enough attack. So mm -hmm. I mic the bottom, and mm. I've pulled the I've pulled the bottom heads off of these toms too, so it's concert tom styly. Oh, okay. And then the best the best version of apocrypha that I can offer on this record is that the day on the day I have a unsurprisingly also a very couple special mic pre's for the for the overheads, mm -hmm. and one of them was just not working that day, so mm. I was like, all right, you know what, mono, <laughs> and it That's ended up so being funny. so exactly the thing that it sounds great. Yeah, it fits in the mix really yeah, well. Yeah, we just roll with it. So for overheads, I usually do Coles forty thirty threes or forty thirty eights rather. Yeah, forty thirty eight. Uh, yeah, it's my favorite microphone in the world. Now I finally got two of those this year. Yeah, they're unbelievable. They're they're unbelievable. so great for so many things. For horns, man, they make saxophones sound so good. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You swap the A for an E, and there you go. Mm -hmm. Um. So, and then the last piece of it is, uh, I have a really special uh, Russian large diaphragm tube condenser also called a Lomo 19A19, <laughs> which most famously was used as the vocal sound for in utero. Oh, okay. And also, fun tie into this Al Green session, uh, Russ bade me never ever tell Questlove what it is, so... Questlove, if you're listening, sorry, Russ. <laughs> All right. Also, if you're listening, hey, Questlove, thanks for yeah. listening to Strong Songs. Tell your friends. <laughs> you never got back to me when I hit you up and Layla was here. What's up? What's up, man? Um, yeah. So that's my whole drum set, and uh, nice. some variation of that is kind of what I do every time. Mm. And the thing that that most engineers, I think, won't really be honest with you about is that the the drum set itself 
and the microphones and frankly even the mic pre's and some of the acoustic things not changing the drummer coming in to or out of that seat is enough to make it sound stylistically like an entirely different realization yep. mm-hmm. so there you so go so everything else was direct everything else right? was direct yeah man so you're just running into various preamps going into your board yeah, again, uh, the 602 I use for a guitar DI as well because that same kind of timbral uh, benefit of saturation really works great for guitar. Yeah, because DI guitar, you can really get that kind of like, kind of, what's the word? That kind of plasticky sound. Yeah, sort of, exactly. Yeah. I find it's really, it's it's worse. That is worse also when you're using phase-canceling humbuckers or mm. when you're using single coils that are flip phase. So if you're in one of the in-between positions on a five-phase five phase mm-hmm. switch or whatever, five-way switch, that for whatever reason, I don't know, just like the those those work intrinsically by phase cancellation. So you're mm-hmm. going to lose some of the meat of the sound, and then it just, I don't know, it just kind of falls apart a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Do you ever use uh, amplifiers? Absolutely, yeah. And I have a really sick amp collection, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just for the... For the fact, you know, I'm just in one room here, so... True, you'd have a lot of bleed, I guess. Bleed is an issue, and then, like, a lot of times guitar players want to be in headphones, so... Mm-hmm. I've done the, like, packing blanket over the amp thing. I have a couple of low-watt amps that are super fun, too, if you want to get, like, a high-gain mm-hmm. sound, but... Mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, man, with, like, creative shaping on the pedal board, and for most of what I'm doing guitar-wise these days anyway, like... I don't need to be Mark Knopfler, so I'm not trying, you know? <laughs> that's probably a good philosophy. <laughs> so that's how you guys recorded. You had everybody in this space. Now I kind of want to zoom back out to this producer role that you mm. were playing because you needed to make this space somewhere where people would want to be and where they would make good music together. How right. did you think about that? Well, Ben is a dear friend also, and so mm. were all the rest of the people on the album. I met the guitar player first on this project, but... He became a good friend very close, and we ended up doing a writing session while he was in town and stuff, too. So, you know, there are, there are sort of two ways through um, uh, uh, misfortune. It can mm. be something that you can be, like, put out by and incensed by, the, the Karen effect, if you will. Or it can be something that makes it more fun and more like a collective experience that you're all having together, right? Mm-hmm. So it gets a little tight in here, but you're like, you know, brushing junk on somebody as you pass by them to quickly <laughs> make a change. But like, mm-hmm. if, you, if you're in a good mood while you're doing that, then it's funny. It's not mm-hmm. sucky, you know what I mean? So uh, I also really, really, really place a lot of tie back into the duck breast. Like I, I place a lot of import on the ancillary things in a day like that, right? So I really was like making sure we were getting good food and taking regular breaks and pacing it well and like making... uh, Ben had made really realized and great demos ahead of time, so everybody had a very clear understanding of what the goals were. And then we further... um, sort of delimited that by making goals for how many tunes we wanted to do in a day or whatever, Mm -hmm. you know? And so these kinds of, these kinds of posts, these goal posts, these, these signposts, these markers really makes it feel like you're accomplishing things too. Even if the physical layout isn't as bougie as going to Westlake a or cello (laughs) or whatever, you know what I mean? Yeah. How do you, what do you do when you run up against a kind of a time versus takes thing? I've definitely found there, there's always the time where you you really just want to get the take 
done, like you want to get the song recorded and you're, someone's making a mistake or you're, it's kind of not there yet and it's not happening. And maybe the clock is ticking or you're going to need to go. It's near the right. end of the day. You don't want to stop. Or you're not sure how to stop. And you can get trapped in these cul-de-sacs. How do you avoid those or navigate them when they happen? That's a fabulous question. I mean, the real answer is that I'm lucky enough to be messing with people who have put in enough work before they see me. Yeah. That I'm not like really, we're like driving down the boulevard. We're not back in the neighborhood in the cul-de-sac. <laughs> um, sure. But the real, you know, the, the longer, slightly more philosophical answer, I think, is that it takes time no matter what. You're either putting in the time on your instrument, you're putting in the time on the day, or you're putting in the time in post-production. Mm. You know, and so mm -hmm. if, if it's a situation where somebody needs to be on the album and it's not something that I can later replace with a musician that's better suited to the task or maybe they're the principal on the album and you got to make it <laughs> right, work, right. you yeah. know, you just you make it work. Like if it's like like a situation where that person is too busy and you don't have the ability to take up any more of their time, then you make it work with post. You tune it you know you, yeah. you make it work you get another singer that sounds just like her and and have her cover mm -hmm. a couple words whatever you know mm -hmm. that doesn't really mostly happen but i've heard some stories at a high level about that happening you know yeah yeah um so yeah i mean i think the real answer is that it just takes time no matter what it's just how you're appropriating that time mm-hmm you mentioned that Ben made really great demos, and I've always found that process interesting. Mm. Just as a songwriter on my own, I tend to make demos that are overly elaborate mm. and kind of, they like set the song in stone in ways that sometimes sure. I'm then not happy with. Sure. And then going into the studio to actually record something with people, it can be hard to get away from that because I spent so long in the demo. What makes a good demo in your mind as a producer that you're then going to work with, you know, and turn into something more? Well, again, I think the, as I've been doing the shadow work that we've all been doing in this Rona year, like one <laughs> of the biggest truths that I've stumbled upon, I think the only thing that I can kind of come up against as like a universal human truth is dualism, right? Mm -hmm. Dichotomy is the only essential nature of being that's shared across every every moment, every interaction, right? So like in spirit of that, like Ben made these very realized demos, meaning that the arrangement was correct. That yeah. there were there were effects design that helped to give a sense of what the emotional landscape and the world that the song lived in were. Um, even some in some cases, we like synth sounds we used from his demos because we just liked them. You know, some of the synths like, sound great on the record. Yeah, yeah, right. And like, why would I redo that? Like, I have a Oberheim OB8 right here, but oh, if it's already killing. Like, <laughs> it's already killing. Synth. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Um, man, it's literally in the mix position. I just. Just built these synth shelves right here. Uh, How? Oh yeah, there it is. Beautiful synthesizer. Uh, that was yeah, yeah. my self birthday present last year. In fact, nice. Um, so you know, I mean, I think on the one hand, it can be incredibly, incredibly helpful to have a demo that's like fully arranged like that. On the mm. other hand, it can be stultifying, right? Like, would you right. write it if? RIP, but like if you had the opportunity to call Roy Hargrove, would you write an arrangement for Roy or would you be like, Roy's doing an arrangement? We don't need to demo this, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I think in that way, like if you're going to do very realized demos, again, being aware of the personnel that you're going to invoke for those roles ultimately, if you have the ability to know that from the writing, that can sure. inform the writing in a very useful way. Or if you know that you're going to call a star, just leave room. 
make a boom bap mm-hmm. that carries it enough but doesn't have to be the whole thing you know mm-hmm. um and then the other side of that the dichotomy the dualistic thing is like also it's always great to just get like a simple piano demo right you know because then it can be anything right you can just build on it, it it's such a trust exercise writing recording demos you know that you're trusting in the musicians that you're going to get or even trusting that you're going to be able to get musicians. Totally. You know, if, if I don't know, you know, who I'm going to hire for something like there, there's always a feeling of, well, I'll just totally nail down exactly what it needs to be. And then we can get anybody and it's no problem. It'll exactly. be very easy. But I always, I sometimes worry about going too far with that because if you go too far with that, then it's not going to be any fun for the person that you hire because they just totally. show up and like read the chart that you wrote out with the exact thing they're supposed to play and then leave. Okay. Like they did the job, but, you know, they're not getting to actually contribute or, or express totally. themselves. And, you know, there's merit there too, right? Like in the, in the world sure. of more sort of like com- capital C composing, like that's the gig. Yes. You yes. Know? Well, because time the, is money, like in a different way in that kind exactly. of work. Right? And also you're dealing with IP that often has like a much larger life in, in royalties. Yeah. Right. And so like those kinds of the nature of those kinds of engagements can kind of predicate how those royalties are distributed. Mm-hmm. So like it can be a, an important protection to the composer to have a, a fully realized part so that that right. person doesn't then pursue publishing. Right. Know? That whole material contribution thing that can exactly. get, definitely get dicey, even though, man, there are so I've got know so many stories from people who showed up for recording sessions and they materially they they contributed materially even though they weren't getting any credit for it just because especially if you're playing drums on like a record you're gonna be totally. adding your own stuff right I mean I, I feel like it's they always try to head that off but then people are gonna get creative no totally. matter what no that's just such a like to me that's like a just a horrible precedent that exists that's the only mm-hmm. reason that that is real you know yeah like why doesn't jabo starks make money every time the funky drummer plays in anything you know Pop, for real <laughs> you know and <laughs> not clyde but jabo too you know what yeah, i mean man. yeah definitely watch me i got it watch me i got it hey i got something that makes me um, man, I've been practicing a bunch of a bunch of Clyde's parts recently, yeah. and some of <laughs> stuff too. Those, right. The greatest, some of the greatest drum parts of all time. One day I'll, I'll do an episode on funk drumming. I got soul, <laughs> and I'm super bad. <laughs> um, I want to ask you a couple of broad mix questions before we wrap up. One is just, what do you think people, what's the, what's something people get wrong about mixing who are learning how to be better mix engineers? What is something like, what's a misconception or just a mistake you see people make a lot? Um, I talk to people a lot philosophically about mixing and I just always feel like I need to give the caveat of, and maybe this is the answer to your question as well, is that there's no objective answer to that question. Yeah. Is that mixing is a technical realization of an emotional thing right Mm. like a good mix in my opinion should be a song has now achieved the peak ability to transmit what the intended emotion is to the listener Mm. and a mix should be in service to that right like technically speaking all you're doing is balancing and leveling and making it work on a bad stereo but like actually what you're doing is emotionally interpreting the presentation of this piece of music Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think the thing that I see people missing the most and getting wrong the most is thinking that there's some kind of objective school of thought or objective quality that 
they should be thinking towards or that they should get to or that they aren't at and so they can't be that but like you know the real truth is is that if you're turning if you're the one that's saying go to the master or like the one that's like posting it online like you mixed it you're the mixer so mm-hmm. everybody's a mixer at this point in history. Yeah. And I'm not cagey about my secrets or techniques or any of those kinds of things because I sort of feel like equal exchange. Like I'll learn something from even trying to explicate it. And then you'll show me something that you figure out in your own way with these techniques, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think the biggest thing that for me personally has been such a lucky thing is that I got to see a lot of people whom I deeply, deeply respect break rules. Yeah. You know, and I think that people, especially starting out, don't understand that, like, there are kind of no real rules and like, just (laughs) do whatever you think sounds good, you know? Yeah, there's always that weird process where the mix becomes itself when you're mixing, you know, like it, it every time I'm in it, every time, even when I'm just like making something on my own just to throw online, the there's it's this weird feeling of the thing becoming real and the mix becoming what it is and and you're right that there's never a there's no prescription for that there's no one path toward that it just kind of happens as you move faders around and listen back and take time and come back to it that's right um yeah that's that's really well put and there's no objective perspective on one thing either that right like you send i've i've had other mixers mix work that i've produced or vice versa whatever and like man, I've really, I've gotten some mixed backs from some like top flight first call dudes that I absolutely hated. Like panic attack inducing, did I do this wrong? <laughs> Am I lying to myself? Am, do my clients, are they deluded? Do they need to call someone else? Like, right, right, right. I got this so wrong. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. And I think that's kind of one of the beautiful things. And again, kind of part and parcel to the mistake that people who are approaching this task make first right is that they think that there's like send it to serban and it'll just be the best best possible mix version right, that it could be right. that's not real right it's, it's not that different from hiring a musician right it's exactly. not just a technical process even though it seems technical because there's a lot of like numbers and right you know knobs and stuff yeah <laughs> but, like, but is, it's not that different is steve Vai objectively a better guitar player than teeny hodges because he plays more notes like not for me <laughs> right, right. They're just different. They you have know? their own their own view of the instrument. Um, so one other mixing question that I'm curious I'm curious what you'll say to this. Um, how do you think of EQ? Oh, um uh, yeah, I mean I tend to think of I tend to think of all processing effects in two broad categories. You have corrective and you have creative. So corrective effects are mitigating a need, right? So like sure. we've got acoustic guitar in a song that's otherwise full up full of square wave synths. So mm-hmm. we need to be able to make the quiet notes of the acoustic guitar hang with like fully distorted square waves, compress the hell out of it and make it louder. So that you're kind of correcting an issue of the intrinsic nature of that instrument in the larger arrangement. Mm -hmm. So I tend to think of EQ really broadly in those two large categories, right? Um, There's this great, great video on YouTube of Massenberg explaining his GML 8200 or 8500, whatever his big EQ is. Mm -hmm. And he gets so sanctimonious. It's hilarious, bro. (laughs) He's like playing this loop of this badly recorded kind of digital piano. And he's like, do you hear that ring? I hear a ring right around 3.1. Let's find it. And he like sweeps (laughs) it in and finds it and then dials it out. And suddenly it's like a splinter gets taken out of your mouth. You're like, oh my God, this is now I can listen to this. And (laughs) Massenberg looks at the, at the computer and he's like, can you hear that? 
I can hear it. And you can <laughs> bet your client hears it too. And he gets like super like Mr. Rogers, but like sanctimonious about it. And like nice. that particular kind of EQing though, like mm-hmm. if to those of you in TV land that want to try this, make a, a narrow cue, like a, a small area of the EQ, boost mm-hmm. it, like boost it a lot, like 10 dB, and then yeah. sweep that around. And just mm-hmm. don't do anything. Just sweep it around and see what jumps out. And maybe there's something in 800 that you weren't noticing that's like masking the vocal. Mm-hmm. So tie back into the Super Nintendo. You remember parallax animation? Sure, of course. So I think of parallax animation as a really good metaphor for this kind of EQing, right? Like uh-huh. I'm making room in a timbre where it's unneeded. Say there's mm-hmm. Barry sax and baritone guitar, like... Right. Baritone guitar is going to have more 1.5. Barry Sachs is going to have more 10K. Mm-hmm. So you kind of create this situation where the peaks and valleys of each other can like live in harmony with one another. Mm-hmm. Thinking, yeah, thinking of them relative to one another, it's like the next level of mixing for me as a mediocre mix engineer is yep. just, I a lot of times would just think of EQ as something that I would want to make something sound good right. on its own, you know, right. a soloed track. And the next level is definitely being able to keep in your head the EQ that you're using on up to however many tracks you're working with, how do you keep it all straight? How do you keep it all in your head? Ooh, uh, I read a really interesting article <laughs> that was doing kind of brainwave scans of mixers. Uh, juxtaposed, oh, really? Yeah, juxtaposed against like Buddhist monks, for example. Oh, interesting. And uh, coders as well, actually, interestingly huh. enough. And yeah. uh, apparently the delta wave activity in your brain between a mixer, a coder, and a, and a person, a, a monk of, of deep training and, and deep meditation mm-hmm. are functionally identical. Interesting. So in much the same way, I think as a coder, again, this is not lived experience, but in the way that it's been described to me is that there, you, you kind of build like a 3d picture in your mind of what the total code is, right? Like what the whole goal is. And then you can zoom into pieces of the GUI or you can zoom into ways in which things are moved around the signal chain and then Mm -hmm. you can zoom back out. I tend to kind of mix in spirals like that. Like Mm -hmm. because of Russ, the first five things that I do when I start a mix is listen to the song. Yeah. Well, that's probably probably a good first good thing to do. You'd be shocked how few people do that. And when I say listen to the tune, I mean like listen to the tune and not mess with it. Mm -hmm. When was the last time you started a mix and listened to the song without touching anything before the song ended? I forced myself to do bounces for that reason. It's like back when I was doing writing more, when I would write a big piece, I would have myself print it out and then just go read it away from the computer. It's the same kind of thing, right? Like you can't be editing and listening at the same time. It's a different part of your brain. That's great. That's great advice. Yeah, I think that's really, and man, I mean, you know, Russ mouth to God, like this is the best mixer in the world to my ears. Yeah. And that was the best, most foundational advice that he ever gave me was just listen. And yeah. you'd be shocked how few people do that. And I think, you know, again, like we're speaking in sort of rarefied philosophical air, but like extrapolate that outwards, right? Like yeah. nobody makes art in a vacuum. Like listen to your own references. Like what are you listening to? What are you digging on? Do you know those records? Do you know those records timberly? Do you know those records from a mixed perspective? Mm-hmm. Are you sophisticated enough with those records to understand maybe from research or just from sort of ersatz understanding that like what the technical process looked like from those records mm-hmm. are you trying to replicate or emulate that in your work you know what i mean yeah man the, just having reference recordings when i'm mixing is huge i think that's something that's really easy not to do yep. a lot of people can just walk in and start mixing cold like just go in and sit down and say well okay now my brain knows 
you know, whatever the perfect version of this is going to be with yep. no other reference points. And I'm just going to go, right. which is a really easy way to get into some pretty weird places mix wise, totally. where if you're checking a reference regularly, it just for me anyways, I don't know. I used to not do that enough. And now that I do every time I check the reference, I'm like, Oh my God, like what? what I, you know, especially with EQ, like how sure. do I have this EQ? What am I even doing? Yep. And it causes me to correct so many things that I just these weird sort of, avenues that i'd gone down right no it's like pickled ginger right like it like cleans your palate up after <laughs> yeah yeah you know that's good that's good pickled ginger that is kind of what it's like okay one very specific question that i want to ask because there's some really great sounding hand claps on everything of yours that i've listened to <laughs> how do you how do you make hand claps sound good now i've been tired and i've been weary need your soul now to lift me up I've been talking and now you hear me Should it take you long enough No more darkness Man, oh man, I am actually going to send this to several friends because of this question <laughs> So okay. actually, we started a company called AAA Claps. <laughs> okay, nice. Uh, and that is me, Heather Christian, and Sasha Brown. And mm -hmm. uh, we were doing some claps for uh, a, a record of hers. And we were just sitting here in the studio. I had the Lomo open, my that Russian tube mic that I was yeah, telling yeah. you about. And we were all pretty distant. And it, somehow, man, we just had like, the perfect combination of like hand shapes and like clap force that like the three of us together made this like God level clap. Is that what you used on, on some of these records? And so I have, I have sampled it and I am using it everywhere. We did it like two or three years ago. Yeah. Oh, that's so funny that it is this specific thing with a story behind it. It sounds great. And I'm Thanks. envious only because it is a surprisingly hard thing to do. It's such a good sound. It's so, it's such a great kind of pop. And yet, you know, like recording yourself, hand clapping and overdubbing, it never works. It yep. never gets the job done. Yeah. Overdubbing hand claps, the best advice that I can give to you, and I think what the, the biggest lesson that I took away from AAA claps is that all three <laughs> all three A's and claps. Of course, of course, um, AAA. <laughs> we're going to make an infomercial. It's great. You uh, definitely should. You can just hire us, first of all. Second of well, all, that's true, um, I guess, right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the other thing that... Uh, that I find that people don't tend to play with when they're starting their journey with recording is acoustic space. Yeah. So like two things to do when you're self recording claps is a, give yourself a little bit of distance from the microphone and vary it. If you're doing overdubs, if you want it to sound like a group clap, do a close mic one, do a super distant one, do one from the other mm -hmm. room. Mm -hmm. And then additionally, like try to find different parts of the meat of your hand. Yeah. Like that's a clap. That's a clap. That's a mm -hmm. clap. And all of them together on on different takes can like evince very different timbral parts of themselves mm -hmm. in the larger spectrum, right? Like right. this one is a little wimpy, but like maybe that has the snack that you need way up top when it's again against like the crazy synth bass or 808s mm -hmm. or whatever, you know? Yeah. That's that's good advice. I've always yeah, I've messed with it. It's it's just a weird process and it does help to change things up, but I'm going to I'm going to play around with it more. But yeah, I might just uh I might just hire you guys. Culture Blake class. <laughs> uh, yeah, acoustic space I would say would be the biggest thing to try to to make it more different. Like just go four feet back off the mic and crank your mic preamp and you'll be so surprised by how different it is. Nice. Um, and I, I love the, the tenor of this conversation has been so philosophical, which is obviously deeply my vibe. 
Um, <laughs> and I, I sort of sometimes wish that I had like more active pragmatic solutions to these kinds of yeah. ant- questions to be like, oh, bro, collapse, it's 2.6. <laughs> uh, but it just, yeah. I just don't have an answer like that. Um, Alan Meyerson showed me a really cool trick that I've started doing lately. Um, do you know FabFilter's Pro-Q3? Yeah, I, I've never used it, but I know of it. Shout out also to FabFilter. They don't pay me. I don't get any artist discounts. I just buy their stuff because it's the best. Um, yeah. So Pro-Q3 is their newest parametric, digital parametric EQ. It's a plugin, all the big formats. And importantly, Pro-Q3 adds dynamic EQ control. Mm. So you have just a basic parametric interface it looks great it's the best GUI in the business as far as I'm concerned also but you can additionally in in terms of static boosts and cuts you also have the ability to make time domain related amplitude booster cuts based on corner like based on amplitude right so you make a boost make a like what I was talking about sweep around find the thing and then if you're doing a cut, you can have that react to incoming signals. So it's not right. just like a, a full broadband cut all the time. It will say, for example, you got a peaky resonance in a weirdly recorded upright piano. You can tune that resonance in and then have time domain-based control over that, like a, like a compressor, but with mm-hmm. the EQ center point. Interesting. So that is, that's cool. So it's triggering it like a compressor, but it's just affecting the EQ. Exactly. And then, so what huh. Meyerson showed me, and I had never seen anybody do this, is you can also do the opposite. You can have it be a threshold based expander. Sure. So, yeah, well, sure. You know what I mean? So like, say for example, you've got a clap that's like a little bit wimpy sometimes you can mm-hmm. put a boost in the mid range and then expand. Right. Or upwards compress, I guess, would technically be the word. But right. like, then when it hits the threshold, it actually bumps it. It makes it louder. So then you can apply that to all the different claps that you've done and sort of get different different uh, textures out of them. Exactly. Or like use that as a way to kind of peak the important timbres farther forward into the parallax worldview. Right, right, right. That makes sense. Well, I don't know, man. We've been, we've been philosophical, but there's been some practical <laughs> advice here. Now people are going to get the best sounding hand claps. That's, uh, that's what they come to strong songs that's my, for. That's, that's my legacy right there, baby. Yeah, man. Well, so I always ask people to list three albums. I have a feeling that your listening habits are varied and very interesting. So I'm curious if you have three albums that you think that, uh, that listeners should check out that you've been digging. Man, I mean, I honestly, it took me a little while to delimit it to just three. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Um, I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to go. I'm going to keep it relatively modern because I, okay. I tend to have like old school music taste. But um, two records that have very recently come out that I think are at the vanguard of a style that's going to become much more popular in the next several years. Um, Laura Mvula's new record, I think, is just absolutely genius. Oh, yeah, man. It's a great record. I listened to it recently. I am a huge fan of hers. I'm a huge fan of hers from Jump, too. Like, I don't know if you've ever heard... Um, you can't live with the world on your shoulders like some of the early stuff it's just Mm -mm. so smart and so beautiful and she's just a bad bad lady so laura mvula's newest is great 
Um, nice. In the same vein, in that same kind of Jimmy Jam, Terry Lewis, Control era Janet vibes, like um, Gavin Turek, who's a local Angelino singer. She has a new record. This just came out called Madam Gold, uh, which is, yeah, again, like very Control, like Paula Abdul, Janet, like that, that vibe, mm-hmm. you know. this actually i'm i gave you two cool ones because i'm vain enough and i'm going to give you the corniest answer possible because i'm just that cool which is guilty by barbara streisand oh man all right we talked about this man it's the it's the peak new york 80s house band it's richard t it's steve gadd it's cornell dupree um and i want to say chuck rainey on bass probably i didn't actually check it out probably that's Um, a fair guess (laughs) unbelievable the song was written by barry gibb okay and he's featured on it too and barry is just crushing it and it is the weirdest most complicated piece of disco i have ever heard (laughs) nice There are like compound bars, there are poly polymetric bars, uh-huh. and it's just like some Barbara Streisand disco song, <laughs> you know, but there's like a two beat measure every time halfway through the verse, the chorus has a two beat measure, like, mm-hmm. who is this for? Like, <laughs> who was doing these drugs is my question. Nice, nice. And uh, I got hit to that recently through uh, Barb and Star Go to Vista Del Mar, which, if you haven't seen mm. it, is a great movie. And they use it to great effect in the cold open. And that's how I became aware of it. So I, I Googled it and was like, who did this? Who, what? Tell me everything. <laughs> and funny enough, <laughs> nice. it was revealed to me that the music editor on that film was on the show that I was currently working on. So I like sent her nice. a fanboy email and was like, oh, my God, I love it so much. <laughs> that's the best. Yeah. Um, man, I could t- we could talk forever. Um, we'll have to do this again sometime. Uh, this was super fun, and it was just nice catching up and seeing you, man. So, Brian Bender, thanks so much for coming on Strong Songs. My pleasure. Anytime, man. I'd, I'd love to do it, and I'm always slouching in these four walls, so you can find me here anytime. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And that'll do it for my conversation with producer, composer, and mix engineer Brian Bender. Thanks again to him for coming on the show and to all of you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. As I mentioned up top, there's a list of terms, studios, and gear that we discussed down in the show notes for those of you who are wondering about some of those bougie fire hazards that Brian mentioned. And I do hope that you all go check out some of his work. I've put some links on in the show notes. Check out the Ben Williams record, that Jose James record. He's really put out some pretty great stuff. It's very cool that he's also the guy who taught me how to play Street Fighter more than 30 years ago. It's been a lot of fun running these two most recent conversation format episodes. I've been doing these as Patreon bonuses, as goals for meeting certain Patreon thresholds, but I'm actually getting caught up on those and I still kind of feel like 
this kind of format could still be some part of the show. Like, Strong Songs is Strong Songs, it's all about the deep dive analysis, but it does feel really illuminating to talk to people like Imogen Heap and Brian Bender, to talk to guests like I've had on the show. That does seem like it could play some small role in Strong Songs uh, going forward. So anyways, if you can think of anybody that you think might be fun for this kind of a conversation episode, hit me up at listeners at strongsongspodcast.com. And as always, thanks so much to my patrons. I was recently on a road trip and I listened to a lot of podcasts and so many podcasts have ads and the ones that don't, it's really wonderful that they don't have ads. And um, I'm very proud to be able to make a listener supported show with no ads. So if you'd like to help me keep doing that, go to patreon.com slash strong songs to sign up to become a patron of the show. All right, that's it for now. I am already working on the next episode of the show. It's for a song that I'm really excited to get into. So until then, take care of yourselves and I'll see you all in two weeks with yet another strong song. Strong song.